0: So the Dutch ate their prime minister? I'm pretty sure the peasants rose up, killed their prime minister, and ate him. Holy crap. (laughs) And they ate his brother, too. Uh, This was in 1672. No,
1: they ate his brother, too?
0: It was a full meal. Oh my
1: god. Has that ever happened before?
0: Uh, it also happened in 1964 when John D. Rockefeller's grandson, Michael Rockefeller, was eaten by villagers in New Guinea. Oh
1: my god. Wait, what What happened?
0: Uh, he was on an expedition to seize indigenous artifacts and his boat capsized and he swam to shore and was never seen again. Oh my
1: god. I love that, like indigenous revenge on the colonizers. You know, we need to collect these stories. We need to re-instill fear
0: in the ruling class. I agree, for far too long, the bourgeoisie have abused the world's poor with no fear of the guillotine.
1: And with no fear of cannibalism. I think it's time to make the rich scared again. It's time to give class wars some teeth. Welcome to 2023 and another episode of Crawdads and Taters. Can you believe this is the third year of our podcast? What? Really? That's pretty wild. Yeah, our first episode was March of 2021. So we're about to enter year three. That's so crazy. We've spent so much of 2022 researching and discussing the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine. Yep, It's been, well, I mean, it's been a really defining event for our country, you know? I mean, such a massive U.S. expenditure that continues to this day such a devastating event for Ukrainians and Russians, a massive energy crisis for all of Europe, and a real death blow to the climate in terms of carbon emissions that war always produces. In addition, I would say it's a pretty big geopolitical turning point for the world. I mean, given that the United States has now defined Russia and China as the main enemies in this new Cold War era, And these two countries are part of an Eastern bloc that are building a rival economic and political center, threatening U.S. global hegemony with the possibility of a multipolar world. Scary. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, these are huge global shifts and ones that I'm sure we will continue to monitor and report on in 2023.
0: Yes, this is another forever war created for profit. There's plenty more to be said about Ukraine and US foreign policy, but that's not the topic of this episode. Ukraine part four will have to wait. As always, we feel it's important to offer you news, history, and analysis from a socialist perspective, as this capitalist media and the media, military, industrial complex will not be bringing you information to enrich your critical thinking skills. It will only bring you information that serves to align you with war, Corporate profits, and the ecological destruction that supports all of our very existence. So, we will continue to swim upstream against the current and offer you radical, truth telling perspectives, anti capitalist perspectives, based on the material realities in which we all live.
1: With that, let's start our first episode of 2023. We had intended for this to come out in December, but the railroad strike that wasn't is an issue that's just as relevant today as we are in a political moment in the United States of increasing strikes, walkouts, and labor activity. So to get into this episode, let's hear from a worker with Railroad Workers United.
2: The railroads have chased the dollar, nothing but the dollar, the highest rate of profit possible. And in the process, they have ruined the railroad portion of the supply chains. They got trains parked from coast to coast. And this has been going on since before 2012, at least on, on the railroad that I worked on. So it's it there's a lot of disingenuous type of propaganda from uh not just uh scab Joe, which is what I think we should change his name to, because this was in fact a scab operation against the the rights, democratic rights that we have as uh, unionists in this country to withhold our labor over these issues. And Biden, his administration, his cohorts, in particular Pelosi, made a point of their imperial action, that they had every right to carry out this this scabbing, frankly. I I think we got to look at that front and center. The Democratic Party worked hand in glove with their counterparts in the electoral arena in order to shove an inadequate and unsafe, unfair contract down our throats and at the same time to to uh, wrest from us our rights, our fundamental right to organize ourselves in unions to vote in unions this uh, this tentative agreement was voted down and and the press the mainstream media likes to say oh for unions it was 55% of our of all rail labor who voted voted no because our our different unions are different sizes the biggest one is the SMART TD the second largest is the BLET the the engineers union and the third is the maintenance of way union Between those, we have an overwhelming majority, although the BLET membership voted it by a slim majority, they voted in favor of the agreement. But we operate together, all 12 unions of us in these kinds of uh, negotiations, which is a big step forward for us from what we have done in the past, which is let them pit one union against the other. And then the carrier got the reap the benefit of that and we did not.
0: That was Marily Taylor of Railroad Workers United speaking on the labor podcast We Rise Fighting, a great podcast you can find on Spreaker.com. So today we're talking about the railroad strike that wasn't. This is one of the biggest betrayals of labor by government in recent history. But before we start talking
1: about the railroads, it's important to take note of the broader political moment that we are living in. This is not Striketober but strikes are still popping up around the country in record numbers. They really spiked in December during the holiday season, the most consumerist time of the year. Some of the biggest have included the University of California graduate student strike, which lasted from early November until almost Christmas over exploited graduate workers, wages, and hours.
0: And there was the New York Times writer's walkout in December. The New York Times Guild has been negotiating a new contract since March 2021 and staged a 24-hour walkout on December 8th in protest of the slowness of the bosses in offering them an acceptable new contract. And then there was the
1: Alamo Drafthouse strike in Texas where overworked and unpaid workers are protesting over unfair firings and general labor conditions. On December 10th, United Food and Commercial Workers, Local 7 in Colorado, voted to go on strike in protest of working conditions at a JBS-owned meat packing
0: plant. JBS Foods, that's a transnational food packing company, right?
1: Right, Vice President of UFCW International and President of UFCW Local 7 in Colorado and Wyoming, Kim Cordova provided this statement. Quote, instead of negotiating in good faith on a fair contract for its workers, Denver Processing is conducting unfair labor practices by unilaterally changing workplace policies that have not been bargained on. These tactics, some of which are presently pending with the National Labor Relations Board, create a precarious and often dangerous workplace for these essential workers who risked their health and lives during the pandemic so that we could have meat on our tables. Management at the Denver Processing Plant and its JBS leadership need to stop unfair labor practices and come to the table with proposals for an industry-leading agreement that honors these workers. If they fail to do so, workers have told us loud and clear
0: they are prepared to walk out. So three days after the vote to go on strike went through at JBS, the workers successfully negotiated a new contract which included a 4 to $6 wage increase for all employees. After three months of negotiations, all it took was a yes vote on striking to bring the negotiations to a close. Turns out the threat of withholding labor works. Then Starbucks workers, United Workers, went on strike all across the country from December 16th to 18th in protest of the union busting tactics Starbucks has been carrying out. That's great. And then 7000 nurses
1: have gone on strike in two hospitals in New York City, which started on January 9th which is the day we're recording this episode. So that strike is still ongoing.
0: Also in New York, Uber drivers held a one-day strike on January 5th. So these are just a few of the labor actions that we know about. I'm sure we've missed some. And here we are in a moment when the midterms are over. The Democrats have maintained a trifecta of power with the House, Senate and presidency for almost two months after the elections. They still had a lot of power. And that's important because you might think with such limited time left to push potentially progressive legislation before the new Congress was sworn in, in January, just recently, Dems might have made some bold moves to get their progressive agendas out there. But what did they do with these last two months of 2022?
1: Well, Congress just overwhelmingly passed an $858 billion military spending bill for 2023, the largest military spending bill in world history. It includes $50 billion for nuclear weapons, more than enough to end homelessness in the United States twice over. This is over half the discretionary budget for 2023. They also approved an additional $45 billion for Ukraine, mainly in additional weapons spending. That brings the total to over $105 billion
0: for Ukraine in less than one year. So there's always money for war, but we can't feed the poor or the working class. Oh yeah, and Biden, along with all squad members, signed on to a soul-crushing, strike-breaking bill that stripped railway workers of their democratic right to strike. So
1: yeah, the Democrats made bold moves all right in their last few weeks in Congress, moves to crush the working class, and give huge handouts to big business and the military-industrial complex.
0: Let's get deeper into the railroad issue. What happened?
1: So first, a brief history of the issue. Railroad unions have been negotiating for better pay and working conditions for three years now. BNSF and Union Pacific, the two largest rail companies, both reported record profits in 2020 and 2021. And since 2010, railroad company shareholders have collected a whopping $183 billion in
0: stock buybacks and dividends. Wow, that's more money than we've sent to Ukraine, which is absurd. So the railway owners are swimming in profits, but the workers are being screwed. That's capitalism in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Each individual railway worker generates more than $330,000 in annual revenue for the freight industry. Warren Buffett, who bought BNSF outright a decade ago, states unequivocally that his investment has paid off to him way more than he ever expected. Meanwhile, the freight rail industry has reduced the rail workforce by 30% over the last six years. So while cutting staff means more profits for owners and shareholders, It also means much fewer workers working more and more hours under more and more stressful conditions.
1: Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about in this episode how the corporate media have covered these events. We think it's incredibly important to highlight how media shapes the narrative in terms of these historic labor struggles. And a big part of the reason we're doing this episode is to highlight the perspective of workers. It's the one perspective that always gets left out in the corporate media which of course represents corporate interests and corporate profits. So according to actual workers and not their bosses or CEOs, we know that railroad working conditions are terrible by all reports. 14 hour workdays, seven days a week, no paid sick time or time off unless you get it pre-approved 30 days in advance, major staff shortages, so good luck getting that paid time off approved, And workers are penalized through a point system in which employees have a finite number of points and are docked more points depending on when their time falls off and how inconvenient that time off is for railroad owners. But don't take our word for this. Let's hear it from a worker.
0: Again, here's Marilee Taylor of Railroad Workers United.
2: Well, the fact is that we have no sick days. They granted one uh, extra personal leave day or something that you have to uh, get approved in advance and so on and so forth, that's not a sick time. We actually have no time. The attendance policy that was imposed on the BNSF on February 1st of this year was so draconian that most of us who haul uh, freight from one city to another, inter as opposed to intracity, um, we, we are on call seven days a week 24 hours a day every single day of the year unless we're have have a pre-approved vacation that we're that we're taking or another pre-approved paid time off
1: so yeah crappy working conditions
0: yeah basically no time off at all Mm -mm. so when we talk about you know this Railway negotiations, Biden has been interfering with the negotiations since this summer.
1: Summer of 2022.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: But wait a second. Let's back up a little bit. You might be wondering why President Biden and Congress even had the power to step into labor negotiations in the railroad industry. I wondered about that. It turns out that the reason is a century old 1926 law called the Railway Labor Act, which allows Congress to insert itself into labor management situations in the case of transportation unions, i.e., trains and airlines, where shutting them down would affect the nation's commerce. So, this Railway Labor Act is designed to protect the economy by enacting government mandated strike prohibition that ultimately ties the hands of the workers. Originally, it was worded to protect the rights of employees to organize and bargain collectively back in 1926. At least that's what the act itself states.
0: Quote, the purposes of the Railway Labor Act are to avoid any interruption of interstate commerce by providing for the prompt disposition of disputes between carriers and their employees and protects the right of employees to organize and bargain collectively, end quote. So this was a law that was passed almost a century ago in very different times. The end of the 19th and early 20th century was a time when railroad strikes were far more common, far more militant, and at this time, presidents were generally willing to pass legislation to appease both commerce and workers, knowing that they couldn't strip workers of their negotiating power. The unions were too strong and the government knew that. For example, in 1916, Railway workers threatened to strike for an eight-hour workday. Woodrow Wilson did not give them that, but shortened their work hours because he understood the power unions had. In the late 19th and early 20th century, railway work stoppages and threats of strikes happened much more regularly than today.
1: Yeah, so not surprisingly, in 1920, after many tumultuous years in the rail industry, Congress established a Railway Labor Board in order to constrain strikes and strike threats. The Railway Labor Act RLA of 1926 emerged in the midst of this anti-union era. It was drafted privately by railroad corporation lawyers, but it was still written to preserve the right to strike, as we've been saying. Not even the Association of Railway Executives dared to argue that the Congress should legislate forced labor on their employees. That might have been a death sentence for them in those days. (laughs) In that sense, you could say that the federal government of the 1920s was perhaps more
0: responsive to union demands than they are even today. Yeah, that's true. Today, you know, Congress passes laws forbidding the democratic right to strike. Mm Mm-hmm. One could argue that our National Congress has been totally captured by big business and its lobbyists. We have no limits on campaign finance spending. Both corporate parties are fully in the pockets of corporations and their lobbyists. Government routinely sides with big business to crush the power of labor.
1: And specifically, Biden, along with Pelosi, have always been faithful servants to their corporate donors. Whether it's the pharmaceutical industry, which was Biden's top primary campaign donor, or the military industrial complex, which is launching Biden's proxy war in Ukraine, Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, and all the top Democrats have proven themselves to be tools of the ruling class. And sadly, we would say the same thing about most members of the squad these days. But this is what happens when you run as a Democrat inside a party that's been bought by big business. So anyway, this is the political context in which the Railway Labor Act was employed today. It's why the Biden administration was involved even at all. So let's go back to this summer. What did Biden
0: do this summer, Taters? So this summer, following the provisions of this Railway Labor Act, Biden appointed a Presidential Emergency Board, PEB, to oversee the negotiations between the bosses and railroad workers when it became clear that they weren't going to come to a settlement, which essentially means that a strike was on the table again. You know, By July of summer 2022, negotiations had broken down because the unions weren't getting their bare minimum in terms of sick days. So then the PEB was created by executive order by President Biden on July 15th. The PEB recommendations came out on August 16th, a month later, which included some wage increases. Union leaders had signed off on the proposal, which included immediate 14% raises with back pay and 24% raises over the course of five years. Meanwhile, union negotiators had proposed a 31.3% increase over five years. So the PEB found some middle ground on the wage increase demands. However, the sick days were the real sticking point. The PEB granted workers one single day of paid sick leave instead of the 15 that they were asking for, and the unions were not having it.
1: One single day of sick leave in the middle of these pandemic times? My God, I mean, what if your kid gets sick? What if someone dies and you wanna go to their funeral? (laughs) what or what if you just need a freaking personal day
0: one single day in a year that's unbelievable yes indeed you know most countries have paid sick leave for all workers the united states being a backwards country has none and uh biden campaigned on giving sick leave for everyone but we know his entire campaign was a lie (laughs) And so, you know, the railway workers were being completely exploited and didn't even have the option to take sick time, as Merrily explained to us.
1: Right. And let's not forget that members of Congress have unlimited sick days, unlimited any time they want for any amount of time, but only one single day for the railroad workers. You know, those people who are in charge of transporting goods to all areas of the country. Right, an essential job, unlike Congress. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so per this Railway Labor Act, there was a mandatory 30-day cooling-off period after the PEB came out with these recommendations when the workers were not allowed to strike. Mm -hmm. Um, So this cooling-off period was set to expire on September 16th, 2022, and... Yeah, we can already see how the RLA is a type of strike break breaking legislation because these mandatory cooling off periods don't allow the workers to take action on their own. And so really they've been trying to strike since February of twenty
1: twenty two. Wow. And, you know, the fact that there are these mandatory cooling off periods suggests to me that railroad companies know that workers are going to be pissed after their decisions are issued. I mean, why else would you need to cool off? <laughs> they're angry because they're, they're likely getting screwed and they know it. So if you know you're getting screwed, that would be an ideal time to build solidarity with other unions and plan a strike. But because of these mandatory cooling off periods where strikes are prohibited, it's really kneecapping labor's ability to act during the decisive moment when they are most likely to have a lot of worker solidarity. And if you wait 30 days, not only does this righteous anger dissipate, but it also gives railroad companies all kinds of time to devise shady deals to further divide workers, divide unions, and pit them against each other.
0: Exactly. After this 30-day cooling-off period, once again, President Biden intervened in the negotiations. September, right? Yes. So so this is in September. uh, September 16th was when it was set to expire, so shortly before that. Mm -hmm. And this time, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh was put in charge of mediations to come to a settlement between union leadership and the bosses. Okay, So let's stop here for a moment and take a listen to some mainstream
1: corporate media coverage from September to give you an idea of how most corporate media was covering this issue. This first clip is from CNN back in September, right after Biden put Labor Secretary Marty Walsh in charge of mediations between union leadership and bosses. Listen closely to whose interests are being represented by this reporting.
3: A freight rail strike looming closer could begin as soon as Friday morning about 60,000 workers are set to walk off the job. If unions and management fail to come to an agreement in the next day and a half, the consequences from this could be frankly economically devastating. Gas prices which have been drastically falling from their summer peak could once again skyrocket if trains carrying fuel stop moving. Harvested crops could be prevented from reaching food factories, stopping staples from reaching grocery stores. Amtrak is already canceling almost all of its long-distance passenger trains starting tomorrow as most of their routes run on freight tracks, disrupting travel across parts of the United States, and even your holiday shopping could be at risk. The National Retail Federation saying that the rail strike could prevent stores from stocking up on goods ahead of the holiday rush. We're going to start our coverage today with CNN's Pete Montine, who is tracking the -the down-to-the-wire negotiations between the unions and rail management companies and the one detail that both sides cannot seem to agree upon.
4: It is the latest effort to put the brakes on a possible rail worker strike that could deal a major blow to the economy. Wednesday, bosses representing unions and railroads met with the labor secretary in a last ditch effort to reach a deal by midnight Thursday. That's when 60,000 workers could walk off the job in solidarity with train engineers fighting for sick time. A strike will mean freight rail, which makes up 40% of all freight in the US, will grind to a halt, impacting everything from parts for cars to fertilizer for farming.
5: Transportation's a big part of the, the cost of to the consumer, and I don't believe there's one person in the country that it won't affect.
4: Starting Thursday, some railroads will stop accepting shipments of grain critical to feed livestock and potentially further driving up costs at supermarkets. Rail passengers will be impacted too. Amtrak is canceling all of its long distance routes outside of the Northeast Corridor. In Chicago, 9 of 11 commuter lines will stop when a strike begins.
3: I've been commuting from the suburbs to Chicago now for Um, Over 30
4: years, I could never remember this happening. could take two hours if I'm driving. On on train, it's 40 minutes. With midterm elections on the horizon, the pressure is on the Biden administration to reach a resolution. The president himself has called unions and employers, pushing them to resolve their differences. If a freight rail shutdown does happen, trucking companies say they cannot pick up the slack.
6: It starts with a very small impact, but it grows geometrically.
4: The impacts here far and wide, Jake. One more impact that water treatment facilities are warning they might not be able to get chlorine critical to cleaning water. It is often sent by rail. The interesting byproduct here, Jake, there could be boil water advisories nationwide if there is a freight rail shutdown, Jake.
0: Boil water. (laughs) And those poor holiday shoppers. Yeah, this was in September, and they were really worried that this railway strike might stop Christmas.
1: Yeah. Wow. So much economic devastation. Such a major blow to the economy. Farmers, ranchers, commuters, and even clean water. What a disaster. It must be averted. So what are the workers asking for again? Two weeks of paid sick time? Less paid sick time than any other country in the developed world? Why didn't CNN mention that?
0: Yeah, this is just all fear-mongering. Example after example of how terrible this strike will be for the economy, for the country, for the business sector, for clean water, for ranchers, for commuters. Everyone's interests are represented here except for the workers. (laughs) There's barely any mention of why the workers would want to go on strike just how it would impact the economy that's all they want to talk about because for the corporate media the economy is more important than the well-being of the working class
1: yeah i mean for the corporate media workers don't even exist you know the dow the s&p 500 these are the only things that matter haven't you figured that out yet <laughs> <laughs> the corporate media props up the ukraine war censors voices for peace and guess what it's also a mouthpiece for the railway industry, creating public hostility towards workers who would dare to, quote, disrupt the economy.
0: We see who the media works for. Right. So following the September negotiations, here's a quote from Dennis Pierce, president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, B-L-E-T. He said, quote, it has become clear in our post presidential emergency board negotiations with the rail carriers that they are counting on the federal government to come to their aid if we are unable to reach a tentative agreement. And so far we have not reached an agreement.
1: So the workers were already seeing that the government would likely step in and come to the aid of big business. And at this point it had become clear that the presidential emergency board, the PEB, was going to come in on the side of the bosses by simply implementing their recommendations and calling it the, quote, tentative agreement, or what many journalists
0: referred to as the TA. Right, late in September, these last-minute negotiations did result in a tentative agreement, which was essentially the same as the PEB recommendations. Big surprise. And this resulted in another delay, preventing another strike, in which time the rank and file would be allowed to vote on the TA. And after many hours of painstaking negotiations, this tentative agreement was voted down by the majority of the union members at the end of November. This is another point that the corporate media rarely covered. Let's take a listen. Here's Chris Hayes in late November on MSNBC, which we all know is a liberal media source.
6: The President of the United States and top congressional leaders in both parties are now working to avert what they say would be an economic disaster for the country a strike by the more than 100,000 workers on American railroads. Yesterday, Joe Biden called for Congress to immediately pass legislation which would impose a tentative agreement that some of the rail worker unions have already rejected.
1: Some of the railway unions have rejected. Yes, Chris Hayes. In fact, the four largest railway unions rejected the tentative agreement. There were 12 railway unions involved in the negotiations. 55% of members voted down the TA, with many other union members reluctantly approving it. The majority of rank and file workers absolutely rejected this
0: proposal. So this was a democratic decision by rank and file union members to vote down the tentative agreement and for good reason it did not meet their demands the one day of sick leave that biden allowed in was not enough mm-hmm. they were asking for 15 days of paid sick leave in their original demands mm-hmm. back to the timeline yeah this was at the end of november here after the ta was rejected by the majority of workers december 9th was set as the date for a strike the workers were planning to walk off the job on december 9th
1: Yep, and that's what would have happened. But on Monday, November 28th, Biden called for Congress to pass a legislative emergency intervention to prevent a strike. Nancy Pelosi obliged and using the Railway Labor Act once again to legally prohibit a strike, they forced a settlement onto railroad workers.
0: Here's Joe Biden.
7: The bill I'm about to sign ends a difficult rail dispute and helps our nation Avoid what, without a doubt, would have been an economic catastrophe at a very bad time in the calendar.
2: And here's Pelosi. ...to the floor. It's not everything I would like to see. I think that we should have paid sick leave. Uh, every country, every developed country in the world has it. We don't. But nonetheless, we, we have an improved situation. Uh, and again, I don't like going against the ability of, of uh, unions to strike. But weighing the equities, we must avoid a strike. uh, Jobs will be lost. Even union jobs will be lost. Water will not be safe. Product will not be going to market. It is, uh, we could lose 750,000 jobs, some of them union jobs. That must be avoided.
0: Yeah, Nancy, just it's such a terrible thing to go against workers' ability to strike, but she's really happy to do it. Just really
1: okay with that. My God, if these workers are so damn valuable to the economy, why not give them some paid sick time? What's so hard about that? And the corporate media is working overtime to build a case about how terrible a strike would be. And no one is covering the fact that it would be so easy to accommodate the workers' demands. It would barely cut into the profits of these massive railroad companies whose profits have been soaring in the last few years. Just give them the effing sick time already.
0: But that's the last thing the bosses will ever do, actually accommodate the demands of the working class. If they did that, what next? A living wage for the country? I know, universal health care.
1: So in summary, what did the Biden administration do in November? Well, let's hear it from a worker. Here's Ron Kamenkow, a lead organizer with Railroad Workers United.
5: Well, unfortunately, the most labor-friendly president, quote-unquote, we've ever had, um, basically has opted to side with the Class 1 carriers, uh, Class 1 rail carriers, because he had the opportunity, uh, and he's had that opportunity since this whole debacle began, uh, to basically urge, coax, cajole, and otherwise badger and bully the rail carriers into meeting what are very, very modest demands of rank-and-file railroad workers. Um, And in his latest request here to Congress to legislate us basically uh, back to work before we even had a chance to strike um, under the terms and conditions of the tentative agreement, which is not very popular with the rank and file. We have uh, unions that represent 55% of rail labor have voted this contract down. And so we could have seen Biden actually opt for telling Congress he would like to see Congress pass legislation uh, that uh, mediates an end to the conflict, uh, under which more favorable terms to the workers, which is to say a handful of sick days. And that's what this has come down to. Uh, Railroad workers traditionally have had no sick time, and now with the very, very harsh attendance policies that we're faced with, railroad workers get very, very little time off work. And now we come down to the wire and contract negotiations where literally what separates the parties is a handful of sick time, sick time that most workers actually uh, have achieved decades and decades ago, but railroad workers have traditionally gone without. And we finally have said enough is enough. We want a handful of sick days. And yet the rail carriers see fit to dig in their heels uh, these Fortune 500 companies who have made, like I say, record profits these last 25 years, uh, and refuse to give us anything, and unfortunately, the Biden administration is incapable of siding unequivocally with us as the most labor-friendly president ever. Uh, we would have expected that from him. So there's a lot of a lot of upset and a lot of discontent right now amongst the uh, the working railroaders.
1: Yeah, Ron Kamenkao explains that very clearly, and what a disappointment this must have been to so many railroad workers coming from the most labor-friendly president in history.
0: Yeah, I don't don't think that's an accurate statement, another one of Biden's lies. So, in summary, when it came down to the key demands around sick days— Biden and his presidential emergency board sided with the railroad bosses and drafted legislation offering workers one paid sick day and making it illegal to strike, which is the only real power workers have in a situation like this.
1: And at the same time, a few, quote, progressive Democrats wrote an alternate piece of legislation granting workers seven paid sick days, not 15, but seven. And just like the first House resolution, these seven days of paid sick time also came
0: with the provision of making it illegal to strike. This is the key point that no one is talking about. No media coverage I've seen on this issue, including from independent and progressive media, have recognized that the seven-day sick leave proposal, just like the initial proposal, was also attached to anti-strike legislation.
1: Yeah. Let's take a listen to Bernie Sanders, in fact, on MSNBC, bragging about how great this seven-day bill is. This clip starts with Chris Hayes quoting Biden.
6: As a proud pro-labor president, I am reluctant to override the ratification procedures and the views of those who voted against the agreement. But in this case, where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers TO ADOPT THIS DEAL. SENATOR BERNIE SANDERS INDEPENDENT of VERMONT SAYS HE INTENDS TO BLOCK THE BILL UNTIL THERE IS A VOTE ON ADDING PAID SICK LEAVE AND HE JOINS ME NOW. Um, SENATOR, FIRST OFF, what, WHAT POWERS DOES THE SENATE HAVE, CONGRESS HAVE IN TERMS OF THIS DEAL? COULD YOU JUST PUT PAID SICK LEAVE INTO THE DEAL? CAN YOU MANDATE PAID SICK LEAVE AS A MATTER OF JUST
7: a CONGRESSIONAL Absolutely. LAW? Yes, in this instance, as a result of long-standing legislation, Congress has the power uh, to come up with an agreement in order to protect the American economy. The president is right. The economy would be hurt by a strike. I don't know that anybody wants to see a strike.
0: I'd like to see a strike. Yeah, we definitely need a strike. Okay,
1: Bernie, continue.
7: But here is the bottom line. The bottom line is that the American people and workers throughout this country are profoundly disgusted by the kind of corporate greed that we are seeing. Everybody knows billionaires are getting richer, working people are struggling, corporate profits are at an all-time high, uh, and they're raising prices to make goods unaffordable for ordinary Americans. That's the overall reality. And what you're seeing in the rail industry is that whole phenomena in spades. Chris, in the last three quarters of this year alone, the railroad industry made $21 billion in profits, provided $25 billion in stock buybacks and dividends, and they are paying their CEOs in some cases, 14 million a year, 10 million a year, 20 million a year, whatever it may be. Meanwhile, for workers on the railroads, they have zero, underlined zero, guaranteed sick leave. In other words, somebody comes down with COVID tomorrow. They're going to get penalized because they don't come into work. Somebody is having a baby, can't go to their wife's side. So what we are fighting for, and I think we stand a reasonable chance to succeed, is to take the president, the agreement that the president and Labour secretary negotiated and add seven days of paid sick leave guaranteed sick leave uh, to that and what i'm hearing is not only is that going to be taken up in the house tomorrow i'm hearing that there's strong or at least some republican support for it in the senate
1: so yeah to your point taters here's the actual most labor-friendly politician we've had in recent history bernie sanders And here's sanders acting like adding these seven days of paid sick leave to the original strike breaking bill is a great deal for workers but whether or not the seven sick days got added which of course it didn't in our corporate controlled congress both versions of this bill are strike breaking the right to strike is key to any fair labor negotiation if you strip workers of their right to strike inside this political economy run by and for the ruling class, where railroad CEOs are millionaires and billionaires, then you're stripping workers of the only leverage they actually have at the end of the day, which is a strike or the threat of a strike. And that is the key. It just demonstrates again how anti-labor our corporate media is that they gloss over this without even mentioning it.
0: Yeah, and so this addendum bill that Jamal Bowman, Bernie Sanders, and members of the squad all supported is being called progressive. Mm. But this was a total ruse. Yeah, There were a couple members of the squad, including Bernie and Rashida Tlaib, who didn't vote for the first bill with only one sick day, but voted for the second one with seven sick days. And they were seen as progressive holdouts for doing this. Mm-hmm. But again, both bills were strike breaking bills.
1: Yeah, it doesn't take much to be called a progressive these days. You can strip away all worker power and still be called progressive. (laughs) And hooray for Bernie and Rashida for voting for seven days of sick leave. But seven days is nothing. The workers demanded 15. That's not even half of what they demanded. The workers should have been allowed to negotiate for their demands through a strike action. They've been trying to strike since February of 2022 and have been stopped by the government every single time.
0: Yeah, most government and other salaried positions have at least two weeks of paid sick leave. And even that's a total embarrassment in comparison to the rest of the developed world. And let's not forget that Congress has unlimited sick time. Seven days is a joke. So, back to the timeline. The House voted on these two strike-breaking bills on the same day. Then Pramila Jayapal, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, tethered the two bills together so that even if the second one, the seven days of paid sick leave, failed, the first one with one day of paid sick leave would pass automatically without it having to come back to the House for ratification wait so basically she paved the way for the first
1: bill with only one paid sick day to pass more easily and she's chair of the progressive caucus you said okay go ahead
0: okay yes so first the house voted on the bill with one day of sick leave it passed 290 to 137 to force the tentative agreement in spite of the majority of workers having voted disagreement down right This was the agreement that the majority of union members rejected.
1: This was the tentative agreement.
0: Yes, the tentative agreement. Then later that day, the House voted on the Progressive Caucus Amendment with seven days of paid sick leave. This passed the House 221 to 207, a much narrower margin. And then very predictably, it failed in the Senate. So workers were left with the contract that the PEB imposed one paid sick day and no legal ability to strike. Right, and again, even
1: if the seven days of paid sick time had passed, which is less than half of what workers had
0: been pushing for, they would still have no legal ability to strike. Right, because this was an amendment to the first strike-breaking bill. It didn't change the original nature of the bill. Basically, it just added a section to the bill outlining seven days of paid sick leave instead of one. Hmm.
1: Or as one of my socialist Facebook friends, Sebastian, remarked, We're Democrats and we support rail workers. Here's a bill to give them seven paid sick days.
0: Fails.
1: Oh, well, here's a bill to prevent them from striking.
0: Passes.
1: Yay, we did it, everyone. Remember to vote blue if you stand for working people. <laughs> okay, look we'll at <cut> that. <laughs> Here's a clip from Socialist City Council member Kashama Sawant on the effect of tying these two bills together. She was interviewed on the Bad Faith podcast with Brianna Joy Gray.
8: However, there has been a, sh- a strain of explanation about what went on with the squad members' votes, particularly progressives in the House votes, that goes something like this. I'm sure you're familiar. The argument is that the strike breaking agreement, the TA was going to pass the House without the squad's votes. However, Pramila Jayapal said that through her wrangling, which was celebrated in the moment, she managed to use an archaic rule to tether together this separate bill for seven sick days with the bad strike-breaking amendment. And that since the TA was going to go through anyway, the squad members are saying, and they've said this in a number of uh, tweet threads, ASC has said this, Jamal Bowman has said this, their argument is that it was better for the Senate to get a shot at voting for the seven sick days, no matter how unlikely it was to pass, than to simply vote against the TA, given that it was going to pass the House anyway. What do you say to that argument?
9: Well, first of all, just the basics, you know, setting aside any clever stratagems and all that aside, what is a socialist to do when it is very clear? that a bill is a strikebreaker bill. You vote no on a strikebreaker bill. There's nothing more to be said about that aspect of it. It is very, very straightforward. But having said that, as far as the strategy, the supposed strategy that the Congress member Jayapal supposedly wrangled together, the premise of that entire strategy was that maybe there's a universe where the Senate would vote yes on a bill that contain paid sick leave, let's open the door for it. Now, only Jayapal and AOC and Bowman and these progressives or socialists are the ones peddling what in my view is a disingenuous argument because who in their right mind believes that the Senate was going to vote for a legislation with paid sick leave? Everyone who has any remote touch with U.S. politics knew that this sick leave legislation was going to go nowhere. Not only was it going to fail in the Senate, it was going to fail by a big margin. And it did, as we saw the very next day after the House vote. So this is nothing other than bait and switch. So either a given Democrat went along with that bait and switch or was one of the instigators of the bait and switch, or they were fooled by it. There is nothing better than that that can be said about any of these supposed progressive Democrats. And uh, as I said, even if it was confusing, which I can't see how it could have been, even if it was confusing, it is the responsibility of socialists to be honest with the working class and not to try to paper over a betrayal and then justify it and offer endless justifications. And so in other words, the, uh, the squad and President Biden effectively crossed a picket line to represent railroad bosses against the workers, and it is in every way of
1: betrayal. Yeah, exactly. Everyone knew it was going to fail in the Republican controlled Senate. Even if a few Republicans said they would vote for it, that doesn't change the will of the majority. So in this case, the Progressive Caucus's actions felt purely performative, like they were just trying to cover their asses and make it look like they cared.
0: And moreover, the bill and its amendment were both anti-worker. Mm -hmm. They both were legislative actions to end the potential of a strike. Workers were never given a chance to vote on these bills. Neither the bill nor the amendment would allow the workers to negotiate. The government was legislating an end to negotiations without the input of the workers.
1: Yep. Both versions of this bill went against the original demands of the railroad workers and spit in the faces of the working class the final decision should be made at the negotiating table or on the picket line, not by legislators in Congress. And by Pramila Jayapal tying these two bills together so that the first strike-breaking bill could pass without the seven-day amendment, it assured that a strike would become illegal no matter what, regardless of how many sick days the workers end up with. Man, I just have to say that this kind of half-assed performative action is becoming so typical of the Progressive Caucus. It reminds me of when the Progressive Caucus wrote that letter where they gently suggested the possibility of negotiations with Russia in the Ukraine war and then withdrew (laughs) it the next day. (laughs) And of course, their letter still assured that the United States was 100% behind a continual flow of weapons shipments to Ukraine. Just maybe though could we attach some negotiations to those weapon shipments No never mind we retract the letter
0: <laughs> Yeah it's the same thing here we're completely on board with the strike-breaking bill but maybe we could attach 7 days of sick leave to it less than half of what workers were demanding oops it failed wah, wah, wah. Good thing we tethered the two bills together <laughs> The squad.
1: Huh. Good God, y'all. What is it good for? Absolutely
0: nothing. Say it again. So how have the railway workers responded to the passing of this strike-breaking bill by Congress? Pretty much as expected, they aren't happy.
1: We've already played clips from Lee and Ron Kamenkow. Railway Workers United released a statement in response to the strike-breaking bill. This statement was entitled, quote, Democrats, then Republicans, smite rail labor. That's a pretty good way to summarize what happened.
0: It is. I want to read from that statement. So here's what they said. Quote, First, responding to the wishes of President Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the House voted to legislate a contract that the majority of U.S. freight rail workers had previously voted to reject. The Senate would quickly follow suit. In effect, their actions simply overrode our voices and desires. Rail workers, like all workers, should have the right to bargain collectively and to freely engage in strike activity if and when the members see fit and when they democratically elect to do so, End quote. And here's another part of it
1: quote railroad workers united believes that railroad workers need to explore options other than the two existing political parties since neither appears to have our backs rwu also believes that railroad workers need to consider doing away with the archaic and divided craft union system that hampers our unity and solidarity and initiate the process of building a single and powerful railroad workers union that can win in future rounds of contract bargaining."
0: End quote. So they are calling for a third party because both capitalist parties have betrayed labor. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. The railroad workers rank and file committee also released a statement. In it, they said, quote, as representatives of rank and file rail workers, we declare that as far as we are concerned, there is no contract. Whether Congress passes legislation or not, Congress, one of the most hated institutions in America, has no right to override the democratic rights of workers. If the apparatus of the union signs these agreements, they do so in violation of the express will of the rank and file. Therefore, railroad workers reserve the right to organize and prepare collective action, end quote. Well, that's promising. Yes, it's a good sign that not all the militancy is gone. Speaking of militancy, let's go over a little bit of railroad labor history.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important now to step back and put some of these railroad struggles into some U.S. historical context. When you study labor history in the United States, it becomes clear pretty quickly how much of an anti-union, anti-labor moment we are living in right now after decades of neutering labor of its real power in this country. So let's talk about the railroad workers of the late 1800s for some perspective. This is a clip from the Socialist Revolution podcast. Mark Roman reports on the Great Railroad Strike of 1877.
10: There's one uh, interesting report that when the state the state militia was first sent to Martinsburg to put down the strike, they were greeted with 600 strikers who were on the platform armed with revolvers. <laughs> so, uh, so the militia opted, correctly in my opinion, to close their blinds and just hide out in the train until you know until things either calmed down or they got reinforcements. So, seeing this situation unfolding, which which was in effect no longer just a strike against the wage cut. But was rapidly turning out to be a generalized revolt against the railroads. Uh, the railroad bosses called on the federal government to send the army to Martinsburg. What's also interesting here is, in some cases, the state militias were called out not by the governors of the states, but by the owners of the railroads. They would actually make the phone the, the phone calls or telegraphs at the time. They were the ones they would just skip over. It was clear who who was in charge of the state. Uh, so the hope, anyway, in the, in this case, of sending the federal government. The hope was that they could rely on the army, given the familiarity of uh, the lack of familiarity uh, of the troops with the locals, of course, and that the strikers would have more respect for the federal government than the local politicians, who were more more like clearly in bed with the railroad officials. Six years earlier, we know Marx described the Paris Commune as storming heaven, and I, I get a lot of similar kind of like goosebumps kind of feelings about uh, some of this stuff, and I think it echoes pretty loudly here. Similar kind of uh, determination. And uh, to give a flavor of the attitude among the railroad employees, there's this uh, proclamation that was posted up all along the Baltimore and Ohio uh, railroad lines. Bread, strike and live, remain and perish. Be it understood that if the Baltimore and Ohio railroad company does not meet the demands of the employees, the officials will will hazard their lives and endanger their property. We shall run their trains and locomotives into the river." We shall blow up their bridges. We shall tear up their railroads. We shall consume their shops with fire and ravage the hotels with desperation. Our blood, they can get it. Our lives, we are willing to sacrifice them. Not for them, but for our families and our rights. Call out your armed hordes if you want them to shield yourselves. If you can but remember that no force, however death-telling, can repel for a moment our determination. They may think or call us weak, but we are not weak. 1,500 noble miners are at our backs. Besides, sirs, the merchants and all communities at large along the whole line of road are on our side, and more, the working class of every state in the union are in our favor, and we feel confident that the God of the poor and oppressed of the earth are with us. Therefore, let the clashing of arms be heard. Let the fiery element be poured if they think it well. But in view of our rights and in defense of our families, we shall conquer or we shall die.
1: Damn, they didn't mess around back then. Geez, this is the labor history that's written out of our history textbooks. This is the labor history the ruling class doesn't want us to know.
0: Absolutely. We need a return to militant labor unions that don't cave to the leadership and to Washington. Yeah. Yeah. The IWW is one of the few really militant unions that still exists, and it's just a shell of its former self, not the force that it once was. And speaking of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, I think it's important that we talk about the difference between an industrial union and craft unions.
1: Yeah, this is something that Railroad Workers United mentioned in their statement. They said, quote, RWU believes that railroad workers need to consider doing away with the archaic and divided craft union system that hampers our unity and solidarity and initiate the process of building a single and powerful, railroad workers union that can win in future rounds of contract bargaining can you tell us more about industrial unionism taters
0: right so industrial unionism was something that eugene v debs was really passionate about creating one big union rather than numerous small ones but before i get into that i want to go over a little bit more railway labor history to show why Debs supported industrial unionism over craft unions please do In 1894, Debs and the American Railway Union stood with the railroad workers during the Pullman strike, and Debs would be jailed for his efforts. Samuel Gompers, the head of the American Federation of Labor, expressed his solidarity during the Pullman strike, but did not go to Chicago to actually support the strike. Hmm. So the Pullman strike began in May of 1894. On July 2nd, the federal court in Chicago produced an injunction that prohibited American Railway Union leaders from taking any action in aid of the boycott. So that included Eugene v. Debs. Hmm. On July 4th, President Grover Cleveland sent troops to Chicago to force the trains to keep running. Let's read from a couple letters to illustrate the difference between Debs and Gompers. Okay. Okay. So here is a short message from Gompers to Debs, July 5th, 1894, the day after the troops were sent in. Quote, have protested Tuesday to president against base action, judiciary and improper use of military. Regret inability to go to Chicago now. End quote.
1: So Gompers didn't go to Chicago to support the strike and his protests to the president sound pretty meaningless. But Debs soldiered on without the support of Gompers. In, on July 16, 1894, Debs wrote the following to his parents. My darling parents, have just a moment. You are always in my heart and keep it warm through all the, these trying days. This is humanity's struggle in doing what I am. I am simply true to myself. No matter about what some people say, I am eternally right and the people are with me the fight will be won. If I happen to go to jail, don't worry. I would rather a thousand times be a man in prison than a free poltroon. Thousands of the world's best and noblest have occupied prison cells. After all, I shall go into history right.
0: End quote. was willing to go to jail in his fight for the working class, mm-hmm. and he was essentially betrayed by Gompers and the entire United States government. Mm-hmm. He would go on to write an article in July that same month in the Locomotive Firemen's magazine saying, quote, the president's indictment includes the two great parties that have for years controlled congressional legislation, and these two great parties corrupt to the core are now asking the people to still further trust them. End quote.
1: Okay. So we can see the similarities between the, the Pullman strike and the actions of Biden and Congress in breaking the potential railroad strike this year. The Railway Labor Act didn't exist in 1894, but the president still used federal power to break the strike and jail Debs. The main difference is that the strike actually happened in 1894, whereas today the strike was stopped before it even started. And once again, both parties betrayed the labor movement.
0: And this, you know, ended up with Debs becoming a socialist, but that's a whole nother story. Over the next 10 years, he laid the groundwork for creating one large industrial union. In 1905, he helped to found the industrial workers of the world, the IWW. This union was organized for the working class, not to reconcile itself with the bosses, but to oppose the capitalist class. Here's what Debs had to say about the IWW, quote, the industrial workers has been organized for an opposite purpose and its representatives come in your presence to tell you that there can be no peace between you, the working class and the capitalist class who exploit you of what you produce. That as workers, you have economic interests apart from and opposed to their interests and that you must organize by and for yourselves. And that if you are intelligent enough to understand these interests, You will sever your relations with the old unions in which you are divided and subdivided and join the industrial workers, in which all are organized and united upon the basis of the class struggle. He goes on, quote, to organize along craft lines means
1: to divide the working class and make it the prey of the capitalist class. The working class can only be unionized efficiently along class lines, and so the industrial workers of the world has been organized not to isolate the crafts but to unite the whole working class
0: so industrial unionism was a union on class lines as opposed to upon craft lines so not separately based on careers but based upon what class you know working class versus the ruling class
1: right and the iww doesn't really have any teeth today right
0: Not really, you know, the Alamo draft workers were organized by the IWW that just went on strike now, but really I think it has around 8,000 members today, so it is not a large union at all.
1: So Deb's warning about craft unionism really has come to light in in modern day union history. I mean, because you have all these different unions, even within the railroad industry, you have all these different railroad unions and then all these other unions in different industries. So that fear of like the being divided and conquered has really come to pass, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, and we saw this with the failed railway strike that there were 12 separate unions that Hall had to have their separate votes rather than being one unified railway union or even a greater, larger union of the entire working class.
1: Right. So chances are that vote never would would have been divided like it was between 12 different railroad unions had there been one large industrial union for all industrial
0: workers. Yep. <sighs> well, we learned from history. Yep. That's the importance of having an industrial union rather than craft unions.
1: So we want to talk a little bit about how neoliberalism paves the way for fascism. It's a topic we've discussed at length on this podcast, and we even have an entire episode dedicated to understanding this phenomenon historically from Nazi Germany through today. You can find that episode in our archives. It's called The Best Way to Fight Fascism is to Fight Neoliberalism. And here we see it again. When Democrats betray the working class by aligning themselves with corporate interests, it pushes workers to seek an alternative. And in a corporate duopoly where the right wing constantly espouses faux populist rhetoric, even though it's false, it gives workers a sense of hope. And so, especially in the United States where there's no trace of a labor party, workers often end up aligning with right wing and fascist movements in hopes of gaining better material conditions. This strategy doesn't work, of course, because the right wing always sells them out. But sadly, workers often end up as ideological pawns for fascism in the process.
0: Right. And so as an example of this, I want to read a statement from an Ohio railway worker on December 2nd, 2022, quote, let's put it this way. For three years, I flew a flag in front of my house that said impeach Trump. If Trump runs against Biden in 2024, I'll take some of my back pay and give it to Trump. I feel betrayed by Biden." End quote. There you have it. And here's The Lever News's David
1: Sorota describing this phenomenon. That's right. While President Biden was behaving like a villain from Les Miserables, busting workers' strikes, and then eating caviar and lobster at a black-tie dinner with the French president, Josh Howley was penning that essay, which culminated in him declaring, quote, Wall Street and Washington say that this anti-worker agenda is the natural order of things. They're wrong, as usual. We don't have to follow this path, and we shouldn't a moment longer, end quote. David Sirota goes on to say, many liberals will stop reading right here, insisting that Howley is an insincere insurrectionist, which happens to be true. Indeed, Howley, Senator Marco Rubio, and other fake populists are often LARPing a good game about paid sick days, the $15 minimum wage, and COVID relief checks, but they've avoided backing legislation to strengthen union rights and routinely cast votes with the GOP's big donors. It was the same with Donald Trump. For every decent healthcare initiative and direct aid program the former Republican president stumbled into supporting, he was spending far more time as a standard issue shill for capital against labor.
0: Yep, so that's how the Republicans capture some of the working class vote. Again, here's Seattle Socialist City Council member Shama Savant, being interviewed about the Republican position on the railway strike on the podcast, Bad
2: Faith.
9: And as far as the strategy, you know, I'm very consciously talking about this as if I, because I don't believe that this was some big clever strategy. So this is, this idea was, as I said, premised on the possibility that Republican senators would vote yes in enough of numbers to vote for sick, to pass a sick leave bill. Who in their right mind believes this? And what has happened instead, because, because the Republican Party is nakedly hostile to the interests of workers and of the labor movement, and they are very openly and unapologetically on the side of Wall Street, and in this case of the railroad bosses. So what the squad and Congress members like Pramila Jayapal have done is they have instead created a further situation where Republicans got very cheap brownie points. I mean, you know, let's look at the six Republican senators who voted for sick leave. You know, you're talking about people like Marco Rubio, Mm -hmm. Josh Hawley, Mm -hmm. Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz. Does anybody in their right mind believe that they have even a modicum of loyalty for workers? No, absolutely not. But what they did was vote yes, knowing that there was no way in hell the sick leave bill was going to pass the senate so the larger story in this whole episode is that the progressives in congress have made even more of a open playing field for the far right because workers have been betrayed by the democrats and they're either going to be turned off from politics entirely or they're going to say well the democrats keep selling me out i'm probably going to go on the side of trump which actually we have heard some other workers say so the responsibility for this lies at the doorstep of the the squad and the progressives but i should also say just one more thing in closing in this context is that it is both about the uh, socialists and progressives in congress but it is also about the labor leaders who have sold out them uh, their own rank and file so it's both the labor leaders in the railroad unions but and also the afl-cio as a whole that did fail to stand up for workers because ultimately regardless of the whole story of the votes ultimately the thing to be done if workers are to win is to go on strike the larger question that looms from the question that you asked is what is going to happen to us politics overall if you have if you continue to have betrayals of this kind then it is going to create more and more of an opening for very dangerous far-right current and you cannot blame workers then for being pushed into the arms of the far right because you know they feel betrayed by the democrats and for the simple reason that they are being betrayed so i think it's a matter of real urgency for us to have a, a serious conversation about a new party because without that there is more and more of an opening for the far right you just saw trump declare his uh you know presidential run and while the new york times and the liberal mouthpieces are jubilantly writing the political obituaries of trump and the far right In reality, we know what is happening. Actually, there is a dangerous growth in far-right ideas. And the only way to address this is to unite the working class on a working class program.
0: Once again, the so-called progressives in Congress are being outflanked on the left by far-right fascists. Uh If they were actual socialists, this would never happen. Mm -hmm. But since they choose to back the Democratic Party first, rather than standing with the working class, the Republicans are allowed to fill the vacancy and seem like they're more pro-labor. This gets us back to UC Santa Barbara
1: sociologist William I. Robinson's definition of 21st century fascism as the, quote, dictatorship of transnational capital, end quote. We'll let Robinson explain it here.
2: Because really a fascist project involves a three-way triangulation. And that triangulation is on the one hand you have... um, transnational corporate power, capitalist power, uh, right wing capitalist power. Secondly, you have that fusing with reactionary and repressive political power in the state. So Trumpism in the United States, Modi in India, and so forth. And then the third wing of a fascist project, and this is critical, is a fascist mobilization in civil society. So that's what we're seeing now, that third wing really kicking in.
0: We come back to this definition time and time again because we want people to understand that while a right-wing movement in civil society is a characteristic of fascism, it's not the ultimate goal. The real goal of fascism is to align militarism, right-wing ideology, and transnational capital into the hands of a global corporate elite who will run the global economy for themselves using military force, or as Robinson describes, resulting in a global police state. We'll link to his full interview in the show notes.
1: It feels like we end every episode by calling for a socialist revolution, but really, it's the only antidote to neoliberalism's spiral towards fascism.
0: Yes, and in any case, in the short term, labor must leave the corporate Democratic Party if it's ever going to have any hope of delivering real material concessions for the workers. One more time, here's Shalma Savant.
9: It is that kind of fighting movement that we need for social issues, and certainly what we urgently need inside labor and to fight the climate catastrophe. And in fact, and, and this, this is my last point, AOC herself, in, you know when she was quoted in the New York Times in 2020, she said that sometimes I feel, I'm paraphrasing, uh, she said, sometimes I feel like my own party is against me, something like that. Well, it's true that the Democratic Party does not represent the interests of workers. And to the extent that AOC genuinely came into politics wanting to represent work the working class it's not going to work inside the democratic party so it's it's true but now we have come to a point where she has made her choices it's not about her it's about what working people need so if we don't call out the betrayals of people who say they're socialists and then they vote yes on a strike breaker vote what will this lead to it will lead to young people and workers getting turned off socialism itself because if, if they conclude that socialists are selling workers out How can I call myself a socialist then? That is going to help discredit the genuine ideas of socialism itself. And that is why I take my responsibility as a socialist elected representative very seriously. And that is why I never ran as a Democrat, as you all know. I ran as an independent socialist and I'm a member of Socialist Alternative which is not part of the Democratic Party. And in fact, that is why we are urgently calling for the need for a new party for working people because it is, it is, if nothing else, this railroad worker betrayal has shown to millions of people. It is simply not working for workers to rely on the Democratic Party.
0: Well, she pretty much says it all. Yeah, it's definitely not working for workers to rely on the Democratic Party. We can see that.
1: Yeah. And the idea that these socialists, quote unquote, socialists within the democratic party are selling out workers, it does make the word socialism meaningless. And we really can't afford for that to happen. If we're gonna break the corporate duopoly, we need socialism to mean something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We need true socialists, not these you know, so-called socialists in the squad, these progressives who are giving socialism a bad name by voting for strike-breaking bills. Exactly. Before
1: we end, we just wanted to give a shout out to our patrons on Patreon. We can't do this without you. We want to give a special shout out to our recognized Rebel patrons, Todd Munson, Janae Saliba, Greta Haneke, Old Left, and to our VIP Rebel patrons, Danielle Boley and Liz Font. Thank you all so much for supporting independent journalists and podcasters, especially when eggs cost $8 a dozen.
0: Yeah, it really does take a village to get these podcasts done, and your support is a little token that helps keep us going. If you love this podcast, you really should subscribe at patreon.com slash crawdads and taters. And Happy New Year! Happy New Year!
1: Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.